me when I was 12 years old by ICE. He spent months in a detention center, which he still refuses to speak about, along with my grandfather. Too many times has ICE targeted and terrorized our people, and now, during a global pandemic, are responsible for the 93% positive cases in the ICA Farmville. Shame on those who continue to profit off the dehumanization of our people. Capital, where we interrogate racial narratives in the fallen capital of the Confederacy. Today, a message from the Freedom All Virginia grassroots organizers who held a march back on Friday, July 31st to bring attention to the privately owned Farmville location, Immigrant Centers of America, or known as the ICA, that has a 93% positive COVID testing rate among detainees. The organizers today highlight three Richmond residents and investors living comfortably as our neighbors in the fallen capital of the Confederacy. And so to our listeners today, we ask, who do we protect and who do we serve? Stay tuned to hear more from the organizers But first, we hear from Sylvie Bello, a Cameroon-American council organizer and co-founder who is centering our BLM narrative back to our roots of the African immigrant experience that's balancing the pandemic and the uprisings of the revolution of 2020. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening to Race Capital. Raise up your hands, put the yellow, the yellow. If you want peace in the world, the yellow, the yellow, Somali, I'm talking to you, hey, the yellow, the yellow, right there in Oslo. Today on the show, we have Sylvie Bello of Cameroon American Council. Thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you, Chelsea, and thank you for the great, great work, you know, holding it down in Richmond. Yes. Tell us and our listeners a little bit about the CAC, the Cameroon American Council. Yes. So we were founded, we're celebrating 10 years. We have a simple mission is to build capacity build relevance and build visibility, uh, much like the, the podcast, build visibility of uh, Cameroonians and Africans at home and abroad. We, uh, we do work in Richmond. Ten years ago when we started, we were really the only group uh, doing advocacy work. And 10 years, we've seen just a big change in, in some of the ways in which African immigrants have been plugged into policy and the way policy 
have have done some you know some outreach into African immigrant um, priorities. It's not complete, which is why you know organizations and very specific media outreach such as uh, this podcast is still very relevant for the work that we do. We primarily work on Cameroonian and African immigrant issues, but ultimately. The reason why we do this work, and as the founder, the reason why I created this organization is because I do want a strong Black community. Because when the parts of a whole is weak, then there will be a weak whole, right? So knowing that as African immigrants were part of the Black narrative in America, and knowing that we did not want to be the weakest link that is the reason why we exist. And initially, when I created this organization, I actually did go to different Black organizations to find out what the gaps were. I did go to other immigrant organizations, aka predominantly Latina, and also some Asian-run organizations to find out where the gaps are. And so that's our role, to bridge that gap. That way we're not the weakest link in the Black community. Um, As any community, we can be stronger. So when you look at the totem pole, really, of the Black community, not just that which was dropped into us with the one blood drop or with the paper bag or with other forms of stratifications way back with America, but of course we know our history as Black people don't start with slavery. But when you look at the, some of the history, then you know that, you know, there, there, are, there have always been levels. And, and I'm happy that your other interviewees and other guests on the show have talked about privileges. You know, there's some, there's some levels, you know, there's just some bigger access that Black people have in this country. And when you think about Black immigrants, um, there is a donut hole. I can tell you that when we, when we looked at, say, the Congressional Black Caucus, for instance, um, you know, they never, uh, they never, when I started this organization 10 years ago, the CBC, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus, never had a, an immigration task force. I'm talking about 10 years ago, you know, you would think that way, you know, black immigrants exist. And if you're the Congressional Black Caucus, you know, especially knowing that even at that time, that the top 10 uh, per U.S. census, the top 10 cities with, with the largest African immigrants coincided with the cities that were represented by CBC members, Atlanta, Georgia. Washington, D.C., Boston, Houston, Dallas, Richmond. So when you think about some of the areas where, you know, U.S. Census said, which we already knew, but, you know, if we go by some of that kind of data that's coming out of the federal government, you would think the CBC would instinctively know, hey, if these Black people are in my district, it makes sense for us to have an immigration task force. They did that. We lobbied the CBC, to have an immigration task force, 2014-15. And this is well after we had a president whose father <laughs> was an African immigrant, right? Um, so when you look at the, 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 the weakest link, we wanted to make sure 
when we have a strong black community and all aspects of the black community, we can um, have a stronger black people. And it goes all the way back to, you know, Frederick Douglass. He, he was enslaved, uh, married a woman who was a free woman. He instinctively knew that with that kind of freedom, you know, he had to come back and look at the weakest links, which were those who were enslaved, right? So, so no, we, we, we are tapping into all of that history and all of that inspiration to, to make sure that as African immigrants, we have those same opportunities to grow and strengthen our community. As folks are balancing the pandemic of COVID-19 and now their own realization of the police state or black and brown communities, how are you seeing black immigrant experiences as truly and the critical one to notice during the multi-pandemics of 2020? Look, Ooh, your question, you don't understand how do we like see what's happening with BLM in this pandemic and how it relates to African immigrants and Black immigrants. Look, you, this is probably going to shock you, but we're happy. We are so happy that the rest of the world is waking up to what we've been experiencing every day, every day, every day. We are so happy that the word pandemic is so prevalent and that we can say police pandemic and people are like, yeah, it makes sense. We're so happy that finally folks can see, right, how we have been traumatized and, 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 and they're in a place where they don't have to move. Right, because, because of quarantine, they're at home and they can process this with us. Imagine how we have had to process all of this while going to work, while taking care of our families, while going to school, and then thinking about the police state. And all they have to do is just have this moment of solitude, this moment of not doing anything, and now have to experience this along with us. When I tell you we are happy, that now the rest of the world can catch up with what we are going through. We are happy. One of the things that we've noticed specifically to your question on the immigration space, not just in Black immigrants, but just immigration space, is that anti-Blackness has not been discussed in immigration justice the way it has been discussed in health justice, the way it has been discussed in, 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 in criminal justice. In other, you know, the way it has been discussed in environmental justice, like immigration spaces just assume that when they say racial people of color, you know, you know, by PLC, you know, that it just includes everything and that it, it absorbs them of anti-blackness reforms, right? Um, we are excited that, that organizations such as racists, uh, um, out of Texas, organizations such as Human Rights First, organizations that had never, ever thought about anti-Blackness, you know, had Juneteenth. And talking about Juneteenth, I've been in this space for 10 years. Never, never have Immigration Hub ever talked about Juneteenth, ever talked about anti-Blackness, but now they're talking about it. Whew, we are happy. We are happy. Okay, 
We are happy that racial justice and that the fact that, um, you know, like the movement for black lives came on one of our regular coalition calls. And I was just like, what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. To have immigration folks talk about this moment, right? And yes, I took some issues about the fact that, you know, all that we're talking about by day, I mean, my colleagues in the, in the immigration social justice spaces were talking about, well, you know, let's connect the dots between law enforcement and, you know, knees on the neck and law enforcement on us, border patrol. Let's connect those dots. And I was like, nah, uh, uh, let's go further. Let's look into the fact that, you know, Funding that comes into the immigration justice space does not include black immigrant organizations. Let's go further. Let's look into the fact that detainees, when black Cameroonians in Louisiana protest on Black Lives Matter, none of the immigration reporters report about it. But when non-blacks in Mercer Verde in California do a solidarity Black Lives Matter protest all of you, uh, you know, reporters on immigration, cover it. But don't cover actual black people who protested. Right? So, yes, we, what a time to be alive. On our part, as African immigrants, as Cameroonians, we are also happy. We, you know, we, we, we are happy that, unfortunately, you know, when uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started, Unfortunately, when the civil rights movement started, our African fathers and mothers um, and, and grandparents, um, you know, like I mentioned, you know, like, like Barack Obama's father, were just not as involved in the civil rights movement as they could have been. They just did not anticipate that their sons and granddaughters and grandsons and descendants will benefit from those actions. They just did not anticipate that, you know, the scholarships I got in college were a direct result of the civil rights movement. So what we have seen in our own African immigrant community this time around, this iteration of the civil rights movement and of Black Lives Matter is that more Africans are involved. More Africans, I'm seeing it in my, in my, in my social media, more Africans in Richmond are, are coming out uh, for BLM. You know, when they did the projection on, on, on the racist oppressor, Robert Lee, um, you know, we saw more Africans there than we did when, um, when we did uh, 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 Mike Brown, right? I, I came out for Mike Brown and I just remember the conversations back then. The arc is, is so, it's bending, you know, in our African immigrant community in closing the gaps within with the African-American community, which we are part of. The arc is bending and is closing the gap in the immigration space. This is a wonderful time to be alive. This is a wonderful time to be an activist. And I'm just gonna say that um, the creators, the co-founders of Black Lives Matter included my colleague, Opal, who at the time was the director of BADGI and BADGI is for Black Alliance for Just Immigrants. She herself is Nigerian American, right? So we've always been part of this. When you think about even the civil rights movement, as I mentioned earlier, when you think about, you know, Saki Carmichael, you know, Kwame Ture, he himself came to America as, a, as an immigrant from Trinidad, right? So 
immigrants, black immigrants have always been part, but have we um, actively pushed, not in the levels in which we're seeing right now. So I'm so happy, Chelsea. It's really happy on the moment we're in and how it's just closing that gap and strengthening some of the weak links. Beautiful. Thank you for bringing up Obama. Thank you for bringing up Juneteenth. Thank you for bringing up the symbolism. We need to go into the money and the funding. These are really important moments. And I really want to highlight that you answered this with joy and this time that is uh, where they're calling this uh, unprecedented times, right? And something that we've had to really work with, with our accomplices in the street as being able to find joy in this movement and not sit in their anger because this is their first time experiencing this type of weight and um, how that is also a privilege of this is just their first experience with it, but how, what a privilege it is for us to be able to find the joy in it. And I also want to point out to the listeners that we are finding joy in just validation of our experiences, right? Like that's the baseline of where we are in a lot of this to just be heard and validated and for people to have this reckoning is bringing us joy because of the long time generational erasure. This is the first time Sylvia that you and I have ever spoken. And many times we do connect with folks that we have a rapport with and building community, but however the universe aligned us to talk today, I am really grateful. And I'm grateful that you were able to connect this movement again back to the founders of BLM, that Black women, Black African immigrant women, and this show is continuing to remind people that it is Black femmes that have always led the movement with state violence and taking care of our communities and given the community care that we're looking for and demanding for reinvestment in at this point. How, what, what are your thoughts to defunding the police within your particular work right now? You know, that's great um, segue because to your question about, you know, how does what does and how does defund the police, you know, kind of feature in the work of an African immigrant activist? Folks may not even think about it. Like what, you know, it's, you know, I can tell you right now, we are working on it and it's very important. So it's like three steps for us. One is to educate around um, what the police does into our African immigrant communities. Um, to educate African immigrants, you know. Um, Amadou Diallo, and uh, 20, this year makes 21, 22 years. He had just come out of um, uh, uh, the home country, Guinea. Did not understand the, what we you know, are going through, right? You walk around with this target of a black body, you have no clue, right? Um, did not understand um, how to deal with the police in America. And of course, New York's police, right? In, in much of Africa, when you see the police, your hands is down, your, your face down. You know, you don't put your hands up. Like, first of all, it's disrespectful, right? He was brand new, did not fully understand that, and, um, and did just that, right? Was met with bullets, dozens of bullets, just because he did not understand 
the new land in which, you know, do not understand the, the, the differences. So defund the police is very much a part of the African immigrant experience. So, gosh, 1999, 18, and not that much younger than Amaru Diallo. I was in the New York uh, area, and he was out of the Bronx. Um, Amaru Diallo made um, unfortunate history in an African immigrant community. Actually, I would say that, for me, it was one of the turning points in my little time in America to look at how we can close that gap and for us not being the weakest link. We saw how um, in the Bronx, New York, Amadou Diallo shot. He was um, uh, in his own home out of his neighborhood. Four NYPD officers uh, decided that um, he was not doing what they needed him to do. They thought he had a weapon. It was his wallet. Um, he could not understand them. They could not understand him. They, um, you can imagine, um, you know, NYPD did not have or claimed they did not have the tools. So to de-es to de-escalate, then that makes you wonder how they work with um, other people who are like mentally challenged or or just uh, disabled or or you know in other situations. So if the NYPD, the largest, we're not talking about Richmond police here. We're talking about the effing NYPD right with all the trainings and the monies they get to de-escalate, did not use any of those tools and went straight to 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 dozens and dozens of bullets into him killed him now that incident spurred our community um to look into how does america work reverend al sharpton came out right because we did not know you don't know what you don't know <laughs> you know we come from places uh -huh, go ahead. Speaking of what you don't know, I, I want to, an interesting narrative I learned from that historical moment is how Al Sharpton came out, supported the mother uh, to come from the police custody and during this moment and, and into the people and working with the people. Because as we know that right now, police, prosecutors, the press really work to protect the police. And that was something that we saw from the mother who came here to try and just figure out what in the world happened to her son. So like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And we saw that exchange of power and community in that moment. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of the defund the police is about. It's about that moment, right? That why are you having all this money for training and de-escalation and police community, blah, 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 BS, when you don't use it in a moment like that, right? So Al Sharpton of NAN, National Action Network, came out and, and supported not just the mother, but the entire community told us how it's done here, right? Said, hey, this is your new country. Whether you have papers or not, you pay taxes. That taxes goes to fund this police department. Negotiated as a result of Al Sharpton and others closing the gap, right? That's why no matter what you're going to say about certain people, right? I'm sorry. We know what they've done for the community. Right. That's why when people talk about, you know, Fire Canada, they talk about, you know, Mariam Berry of DC. People are like, look, say what you want to say. We know what they've done for the community. Okay? So back to Al Sharpton and back to the police. Now, Al Sharpton told us how it's done, what is done. Yes, you can speak up. No, you can't do this. Yes, you should do this, right? 
we went out there. The NYPD, as a result of that, not as a result of NYPD, but as a result of the community, that's why we need to reduce some of that funding from police and probably even cut it out to put it out into, into organizations like NAN and, and, and organizations that do community work, right? And, 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 and Al Sharpton, you know, they, you know, they, they got, I mean, you, you cannot bring back Amadou Diallo. His mom um, was able to get um, um, some kind of, 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 of support. Um, the community, you know, my colleague and friend, became uh, the NYPD liaison into the African community. You know, that man right now is the ambassador, the US, the, 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 the Sierra Leonean ambassador to, the, to, to America. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, so that's what came out of that 20 years, but he just got appointed uh, last year. So shout out uh, uh, to the Sierra Leoneans who, who, who are watching out in, in, in Richmond and all over since a podcast is, is throughout, right? Um, so, so that's one, training uh, the community in understanding how police even works. The second part about defunding the police is that the reason why Africans um, and black immigrants are uh, about 78% of, of, of immigrants, but 20% of deportees and deportation is because our communities are over-policed, okay? Our communities are over-policed. So when you're not policing the Irish undocumented people in them Irish pubs, when you're not policing um, the undocumented, you know, Russians with their, with their, with their human trafficking rings, when you're not policing, uh, you know, the, 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 the other communities and you're over-policing us, of course we're going to make the list of the most deported. That is why defund the police is an African immigrant issue. Okay? Number three. Um, in Montgomery County, Maryland, right, um, uh, uh, right now, uh, there are four black men who were killed by the racist Montgomery County police and that have gone on, uh, um, just, just unsolved, right? Out of those four black men, three of them are African immigrants. One is Cameroonian from, you know, my country. The other, the other gentleman is, 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 uh, you know, the, the other gentleman, these are killed. These are men who've, who've, four black men who've died. One of them is Cameroonian. One is, um, uh, Eurasian. Uh, the other one is, 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 is Ethiopian. And then we have, um, 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 an African-American man. So when you talk about Montgomery County, Maryland, right? When you talk about the fact that four black men were killed by the racist Montgomery County police and that three of them are African born, right? How can you say defund the police is not an African immigrant issue? Okay? Um, and so we have been working at the Cameroon American Council. We have been working with our partners at Surge, with our partners at, uh, at, at, at BLM, you know, Black, uh, uh, the Movement for Black Lives, um, to work around, um, uh, um, and, and also uh, um, uh, our partners at the Montgomery County Alliance, to work around um, defund the police. And what does that mean, right? There are many steps to it. We want to look at the different steps, you know, you know, start reducing some of that money. They don't need no military grade. Like a lot of people come out of, of, of countries that these military grades are, are, are in there and there's no use for them, right? The, the police, the American police does not need uh, uh, all these uh, training that they don't even put into practice for when it comes to de-escalating. You know, we need to get some of that money out 
and into the community. We most definitely don't need police in school systems um, uh, because, uh, you know, because when they're in the school systems, like we mentioned already, you know, uh, like, you know, had said already, they go in there and they just deport us more. Not as African immigrants, we don't need, you know, we, we need other forms of, of school resource officers, other kinds of school resource officer uh, 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 duties and, and folks that we tap out to. And I just want to conclude by saying on this defund the police. Minneapolis, right? Significant number of people, of black people in Minneapolis where um, George Floyd, uh, you know, may he rest um, in, in peace while we cause trouble, good trouble here on earth on, on, in his name, um, you know, has a big, big number of African immigrants, okay? And when you think that Minneapolis voted to, um, to take, uh, to, to, to cut back uh, the, the contract on, on, the, on the Minneapolis police out of Minneapolis schools, you have to understand that, you know, in Minneapolis school system, a lot of the, not a lot, but we have at least one or two board members who are African immigrants. Majority of the black kids there are African immigrants from Somali, from Ghana. Of course, you know, you know about Minneapolis because Ehan Omar, right? So there are lots of uh, uh, districts, lots of jurisdictions, lots of states where the black community are significantly African immigrants. When you think about Alaska, we, we, we had a case a couple of years ago where the Alaskan police were, were coming after uh, the black community and they were South Sudanese. And so they reached out to us because like I said, when we started this organization, we were the only you know, African policy group. Um, so Chelsea, yes, defund the police is in our work. It has always been in our work. There are various ways of defunding the police um, and there are various, and, and it starts from outreach and connecting the dots with, with um, with, with others. Um, really quickly, you gave us three points. Could you just do the three points, run them down really quickly one more time in the summary? Sure, so one is, is in our community itself. Just, you know, what it means to have this black body and having been a target. The second part is um, looking into the, 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 just like the schools and, and, and other ways in which we can um, take police out. And then the third part is, um, you know, the fact that we get deported more is because our communities are over-policed. Right. So right. those are the three things that um, we work on and, uh, uh, and that connects to, 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 to defund the police. Great. And Sylvie, this has been amazing. We're going to have to have you back on. But as we get out of here, please share what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy, not just in your place and space, but in this pandemic? When I tell you I've always wanted this question, when I tell you what is your privilege is something that I think about a lot, and this is going to shock you right now what I'm about to say. My privilege is looking visibly African. My privilege is having dark skin in today's world. Uh, my privilege is someone looking at me and saying, you don't look African-American, which means you're the good one, which means you're the good black person. You don't look African-American, which means you work harder, which means you're smarter. You don't look African-American. It means that you did not do that wrong thing. How have I used my privilege? When I'm in New York, I would spend, when I arrive at, at Penn Station, I always spend at least an hour before any of my other meetings set up 
just to look around um, waiting for NYPD going after the young brothers who are jumping the, the, the turn. That way, when uh, the police comes in, I can quickly say, hey, what's going on? They listen to me more because they assume I just arrived. They don't know I've been in America for 20 years. They don't know I know my laws then, maybe some of them, right? Um, so I can beg, right? I can rev up my African accent where, hey, what happened? Hey, it's just a child now. Where? Leave it like that. Oh, look at that baby. Hey, please. You know, that's how I use my privilege. I am um, uh, the, the, the light-skinned person of the, 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 of, the, of the 1800s, okay? I am the, 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 the curly hair, right, of the 1800s. You know, I make sure, huh? I use my privilege that they flip, and I flip it the way those who had to pass. I pass today for good. Thank you. But I really appreciate that perspective and being able to identify the biases in, in people's lens and how to use that to disrupt what's happening and to save people's lives, very, like, frankly. To do it in a very specific intentional space, like the train, right? Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for thinking of that. Thank you for teaching us how to continue to process what we can use within the system and, and within these spaces to ensure that we're, we're creating some type of um, inclusivity and safety for others. How can people continue to follow what you all are doing and um, learn more about you? No, thank you. So I just want to give a shout out to all the Africans in Richmond, uh, Tatiana, Jibril, they do great work holding it down out there and uh, doing the African uh, Miss Africa shows. Uh, you know, to reach us is um, at Cam Amer Council, C A M A M E R Council, C O U N C I L. We're on uh, Facebook, Twitter. Just got on uh, uh, Instagram, so uh, you know, follow us. Um, our uh, number, we're also on WhatsApp. is is connected to our Facebook, but it's two zero two nine zero two three two eight three. And um, we we want to hear from you. We want to connect with you. Um, yes, it's a virtual world now. There are Africans everywhere you are. Uh, if there is a school, if there is a, a, a hair braiding shop, um, there are probably Africans, you know, in your district um, that, that we want to, like, bridge. We, we don't want to be the weakest link. We want to build a strong um, Black community, which would, you know, we know what the Black community has given out to the world. Uh, we know how hip-hop and the many, many African-American um, um, cultural uh, uh, exploits have been exploited by the U.S. government out uh, in the world. So we, we want to strengthen um, the greatness that we are tapping into right now. Um, so, so yeah, connect with us. Thank you for this opportunity. And I just want to say that we need more Africans. We need more Black people um, working on um, decriminalizing marijuana, working on the profits that come or that will come from, you know, having all these uh, new business ideas 
on around uh, marijuana and medical marijuana and all kinds of other fancy names they want to give to it now that they're saying that decriminalization is the way to go we we need more um of us um you know in that space and this quarantine is a, is a good time to look to see you know what are the business opportunities there um because uh, you know a lot of our jobs uh, are have been have been cut uh, and um, and so advocacy and business uh, is is something that we need to be looking at all the spaces that we can get reparations from, and marijuana, cannabis, and all of that is a definite reparation angle. Getting folks out of jail, you know, getting those cities to pay for them for being in jail for something that they're about to benefit from. So, so I just want to just throw that out there, and and thank you, Chelsea. Thank you so much for bringing that up and tying that in. As many folks know, I do work with Marijuana Justice. I'm a co-founder, very intentionally Black-led organization for that intentional work to bring the reparations, reinvestment, restitution, whatever you want to call it, we deserve it. As Virginia decriminalizes and looks to legalize marijuana I can let everyone know that Marijuana Justice's website is marijuanajustice.org and the organization is heavily involved in the General Assembly, this special session because of policing. Of course, marijuana is the gateway lie normally in order to over-police and search and overcharge uh, black and brown people all over the world, but specifically in the South, as we are, we are seeing right now in this Commonwealth. So I uh, thank you for bringing that up and that tying that in. That's been another conversation I'm having to weave into people to say, of course, of course, this is an issue right now. Of course, the smell of marijuana, the policing, and Maryland actually just outlawed the smell of marijuana being a reason to now search people for probable cause. And Virginia very directly um, denied that this past General Assembly. So we will see how those pretextual stops are spoken about in a democratically led General Assembly in Virginia starting on August 18th when we come back for policing right here in Virginia. So we'll keep watching. Thank you, Sylvie, for being here. And we will stay tuned for all the great work. Thanks again. You're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP. 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio with me, Chelsea Higgs Wise. And today we're talking about defunding a police state system that is over policing and illegally incarcerating black immigrant lives. Stay tuned. This is uh, mostly to anyone who identifies as an ally. Uh, I also have a lot of room to grow here. But uh, when I went to the Bill action, I was really. Um, I don't know what to say. It affected me a lot to see that how many trans folks showed out for that event. Uh, also, how many people who had been directly impacted by the immigration system turned uh, showed out. And it cannot be them showing out every single time. So we all need to show out at these actions and put our bodies on the line. Today on Race Capital, we are highlighting voices from the street, voices from our community. And this past Friday, there was a powerful march that was held in the Carytown area to bring attention to the Farmville ICA. And today, we have one of the organizers with us joining. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. 
I am extremely honored and excited to be here to be speaking on this. I've been listening to Race Capital for some time now, and um, I'm just at a loss of words, but thank you for this platform. Tell the listeners a little bit about who you all are as an organization. So we are a collective of people from all different professions, all walks of life, different ages, and we are focusing on a grassroots movement. We want us to free them all. There is no one organizer. There is no one organization that we are tying ourselves with. We know that everyone has a place in this fight. And for too long, too many of these voices have continued to be silenced, whether that be undocumented immigrants, people in DACA, child, children of undocumented immigrants, you know, that have their parents have stolen. There's different um, groups of people that have just been collectively terrorized by ICE as an institution, Border Patrol, um, Customs and Enforcement, constantly terrorizing our communities and listing a fear. And we are ready to collectively organize and stop being afraid. And that's who we are. Well, welcome to Race Capital. We are honored to have you. We are honored to have your voices leading us and guiding us in the streets. This past Friday, you all organized a march that had a strong message for this moment, but also a very different message that hit home around COVID as well as the pandemic of racism here in the United States. Tell us a little bit about the march this past Friday. Great. So the the march this past Friday was specifically calculated towards um, very precise individuals that are profiting off ICA detention centers. And ICA detention centers, um, which most people do not know, stands for Immigration Centers of America, which is a privatization of prisons that are caging our people. And the way that they're profiting are these are big investors that have tied their name to ICA. And this is public knowledge. Anyone can look up who the investors and owners are of the ICA, just nobody has. Uh, so once we found out that in Farmville ICA Detention Center, there was a 93% uh, positive cases within a detention center, um, just shock because the negligence has always been there. But during a global pandemic, they have decided that the life of these people, these men, these fathers, these sons, don't matter. And their fix to that has been to send more doctors. When ICE has publicly stated what they are doing to protect the detainees that they're profiting from, from COVID and it's listed on their website. So I encourage everyone to do some research behind this because they're not following what they're saying that they wanna do. We were really lucky to be contacted and be working with many different organizations doing this type of work and following the cases that's going on in Farmville and doing a lot of behind the scenes logistics. So we had a lot of support, which is why the event grew to what it was because this is a grassroots. So regarding the event on Friday, 
We specifically targeted Ken Newsom because he is a founder of ICA, an executive of ICA, a spokesman and investor of ICA. He has been publicly supporting organizations that are for the social justice movement and, you know, continues to promote this higher moral ground with ties to third church enrichment. Um, so we thought it was time to call him out. It was time to not let him live comfortably um, while he continues to profit off ICA. And um, that was basically the intent of the event on Friday. So we all organized um, in the Kroger on Cary Street, which is just across the bridge from the home and neighborhood of Ken Newsom. And we organized there, we had some speakers from different organizations, and we marched, you know, protected with bike marshals and a car brigade behind us um, in unity. And when we arrived outside of Ken Newsom's home, we continued to shame him, you know. And we have specific demands for Ken Newsom that are very public and very outlined as to what we want from him. Um, and that's what we did. And, and, um, were you met with any resistance while you were there? Yes, absolutely. We were met with resistance, um, from Richmond police. As soon as we got to Ken Newsom's home within 10, 15 minutes, there was a good group, a good number of police already at the edge of um, that block, just looking at us. You know, they had zip ties ready. They had pepper spray cans in their hands. Um, we decided to turn around and start heading back, start marching back to avoid a conflict. Um, and as we're heading back, we noticed that the police um, turn around and pull up and start blocking both sides of the roads. Um, so we really only have one road to continue forward. Um, and at that point, they start recording all of the people inside the cars. Um, they're taking video and pictures of license plate and people's faces um, in a very aggressive way. Um, you know, telling us, I'll have a nice walk. Um, um, so the police stopped a biker and they also came in with big vans, big white vans, all got out extremely fast, aggressively. It was extremely shocking to us, especially as, you know, organizers that are rather young and just starting, you know, to work as a collective in grassroots, um, how intensely they did not want us there. Mm -hmm. And how was the reaction from the people, the press? So regarding on how we feel on how the event went and you know, the media coverage and how the media talked about it, it honestly um, was amazing to us because, you know, we're talking about this and this is long overdue. And for so long, the media has, you know, dehumanized us, played our narrative as a political token. Um, using rhetorics like illegals, um, blaming parents for being separated from their kids. Like, well, why would you even come to this country? 
you know, the media has perplexed uh, us into an arena of just a box ma boxing match within the, the two-party system. And they continue to forget that when they're playing with DACA, they're playing with people's lives, futures, families, and every aspect. This is complete terror, terror that has been inflicted in our people. And the media has helped that. You know, they, they've continued to do that. And now that they're talking about this, you know, we were contacted by a few media in Richmond area um, that have asked for a statement. We've, we've been very specific on what our message is. But our issue with this is because we don't want the media just to start listening to our voices now. We want them to continue to listen to us. They should have been listening to us. This isn't just a hashtag they can get behind because Netflix decided to release a series covering Immigration Nation uh, from a perspective of ICE. No, you don't get to do that. You don't get to just jump on a bandwagon of social justice when it's convenient for your ratings. So that's my issue with the media coverage because they also decided to just focus on one demand out of nine demands that we listed, constantly repeated. Of course, we have the right to decide and ask to abolish ICE, but that is not our only demand. We have a specific list of demands and one of them, our main one, is to call attention to the privatization of ICE. And the people who are benefiting are here in Richmond. The people that are benefiting from the immigration centers of America that live in Richmond and have their, org their companies in Richmond, ours listed. Ken Newsom, Russell Harper, and Warren Coleman also aligned with Harper Associates. So our nine demands are one, immediately release all people detained by ICE. Two, abolish immigrant detention centers and the entire prison industrial complex. Three, defund the Department of Homeland Security. Four, begin a reparations program for undocumented people who have been harmed at immigration centers of America. Five, Organizations with ties to racial justice missions must cut ties with the for-profit prison system and their owners. Six, abolish Customs and Border Patrol, abolish ICE, and abolish imperialist borders. Seven, demand that Henrico, Richmond, and Chesterfield, Chesterfield PD and Sheriff's Department cut all ties with ICE. Can you read Eight, that one more? Can you read that one one more time? My internet went out. Yeah. Seven, demand that Henrico, Richmond, and Chesterfield PD and Sheriff's Department cut all ties with ICE. Eight, release people who are detained and provide health care during a public health crisis. Stop just deploying doctors. And nine, reestablish protests and public gatherings as a sanctuary space for First Amendment rights. Thank you so much. And we are going to absolutely have to continue to share you all's mission and hear from you all. But for right now, as an organization working in this space, we want to ask, what is your privilege right now and how are you using it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? 
think as an organization, um, to identify your privilege is we need to explain what our lack of privilege is um, and what makes us, you know, a target for ICE and these white supremacist groups constantly is the fact that our people are undocumented. And the fear has been instituted in us from childhood that we are afraid to stand up for our own human rights. So where does our privilege come in this organization? Is that we are not just a collective of undocumented voices, but we are also affected in many different ways. And the people who are affected are citizens that are now stepping up to not only give a space that is safe and protected for undocumented people to finally, finally feel safe enough to stand up for their own rights, for their own humanity. And that's how we're using our privilege within our own organization to uplift the people that are most affected. Like I said, our, our grassroots organization is focused on we as a grassroots, we will free them all. And that is our privilege because this time they don't get to silence us but because they don't get to threaten us on our status in this country. They don't get to threaten to disrupt our lives and take us away from our family. And they should be scared. Well, it is our privilege to share your voice. Thank you for being here. How can we continue to follow you? So how can Richmond area and everyone listening continue to follow us, continue to get involved? Um, first and foremost, I definitely recommend people to take a look at the Netflix um, docu-series called Immigration Nation. Um, it just came out yesterday, August 3rd, and we recommend everyone to look at that um, to get kind of caught up with what's been happening to us for far too long. And how to get involved with specifically our grassroots move movement. So we want people um, to get involved by following our Instagram account, which, which is free them all VA, our Twitter account, which is VA free them all, and our email for contact is free them all Virginia spelled out at Gmail. And message us. Tell us how you can get involved. Tell us a specific part of ICE, ICA, um, what passion, what um, drives you to get involved with this movement. Tell us what you can bring to the table. We want everyone, we need everyone to do this. We also encourage people to, you know, follow our actions alerts, come to the rallies, come to the marches, to continue to research, like I said, most of this information about the privatization and the profit of caging our people is very public. And you will be surprised who you know as leaders in your community that benefit from this. Um, but yes, messages, contact us, reach out to us. Thank you so much for being here and good luck with all of your work. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of our guests today. And thank you to all of our listeners who will be reminded that this Black Lives Matter movement goes beyond the policing and into the carceral system that's maintaining a institution and profit off of our backs to say that it is protecting only a few.
We remind everyone as we memorialize those who's had their lives taken from us at the hands of police violence, not to forget those that are still locked up in cages and have a chance to still be rescued. Will we use our privilege to free them all? We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you in the streets. You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And thanks for tuning in to Race Capital. This is Chelsea Higgs Wise. We'll catch you next week. If you don't want no war, no more stand up. We don't want no war, no more. Tell them we say we don't want no war, no more. Tell them we say we don't want no war, no more. Tell them we say we don't want no war. We don't want no war in Afghanistan, war in Palestine, war in Brooklyn. They say we don't want no war in Zambia. If you don't want